opening up to Matthew 12, 9 through 21, I think it's fair to say that uh, we are in the midst of the one and only Christmas season, right? Uh, uh, that hits in like early October uh, in most consumeristic circles. Uh, not that, that was somewhat of a joke, but it sometimes feels like that, like we're hitting Christmas before it's even Halloween, right? Uh, but nonetheless, we're in the middle of this Christmas season, and I don't know about you, but uh, there's something that happens in the fall heading into the, to this season where things are just kind of crazy. Like, they're, they're nuts. Uh, so many things going on. Raise your hand if you feel like that. So many things going on. If one more thing goes on, something's going to snap, right? There's only so much we can do. There's only so much weight we can hold. And, uh, and yet at the same time, there's something really unique about the Christmas season that when everything seems to be chaotic, uh, especially as you add like Christmas shopping and, and family gatherings and work gatherings, all that stuff, there's a real unique opportunity in this season for everything to, to kind of be reordered. Right? On the one hand, there's so much going on. Life is chaotic. It's nuts. But on the other hand, when the emphasis is properly placed, the Christmas season has a way of, in a unique way, just reordering things. Putting things in their proper place. Even as we hand each other materialistic gifts in some ways, or, or just, just things just to be nice, give, it's not necessarily a bad thing, that's not what I'm saying. But even as we do that, we recognize that there's something even more meaningful than these things that we're giving, right? There's, there's something even more meaningful than, than the things that we've wrapped and put in a box and, and given to someone else from a physical, materialistic point of view. There is something about this season where things come together, Right where, where there's a, a, a point of uh, convergence on the things that matter in life. When things can feel like they're falling apart, there's a real unique opportunity for things to come together in this season. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And let me be very clear. I think Advent provides an opportunity to be very clear on these things. Jesus brings everything together. So I'm going to say it right at the beginning. That's what this text is all about today. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus brings everything together. He's the point of convergence. When everything seems to be falling apart and going in opposite directions, working against themselves, things that matter, family, work, personal, finances, when everything seems to be pulling away from one another, again, even... Our walk with God, our relationship with Him, our relationship with one another, our marriages. When everything seems to be pulled apart, there's something unique about Christ that brings everything together. Where in our sinful fallen condition, there's a dichotomy created between things that are meaningful, that are important. Jesus brings it together. And so today... Even now, before we even dive into the text, just want to throw that out to you. If, if you feel like everything is falling apart, it's Christ that will bring it back together. So let's enter in to Matthew chapter 12. 
And already I'm feeling like this could be one of those sermons. So I'm going to try to stay focused. <laughs> Matthew 12, 9 through 21. Matthew records, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will any hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. All God's people said, amen, amen and amen. You've got to understand a little bit of the context of this passage, I think, to understand uh, kind of what's going on here. So if you go back last week, Matthew chapter 3, uh, Mike Becker preached on John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the one who was to come. And his primary call on the people as they were being baptized into the Jordan was what? One word. Repent. Repent. This is a time for you to change your ways, to change your mind, to change your direction. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? And so this one who was to come is Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. We see this. He defeats Satan in the wilderness, and then he's baptized, and he begins his ministry. What is his ministry all about? He's traveling around the region of Galilee, uh, interacting with people, real people, in desperate situations, in their ordinary lives, away from Jerusalem, out into the surrounding area of Galilee. And he's preaching. Guess what he's preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Even Jesus is saying, the time has come. It's time for you to turn and change your ways and turn to me, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus sits on a mountain and he preaches the greatest sermon ever, Matthew 5 through 7. And then we see at the conclusion of that sermon on the mount uh, that Jesus continues his ministry. In Matthew chapter 9, he looks uh, at this guy being lowered down into a living room through the roof, and he declares that his sins were forgiven, and he upsets some people. 
He upsets the religious leaders of the day. You know why? Because only God can proclaim forgiveness of sin. Who does this guy think that he is? And then Jesus heals this paralytic, this guy that's never walked. Now he's running around leaping and praising God. And so you can see the tension is rising between these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the work and person of Jesus Christ. There's a contrast between them, and there's a conflict that is happening. And then here in uh, chapter 12, we got issues. We got issues about the Sabbath, the day of rest, what is lawful, what you are allowed to do on the Sabbath, the day of rest. You see, the religious leaders, they had a view about what was allowed and what was not allowed, and they see Jesus' disciples and they go, hey, 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 hey. Criminals, calling you out. That's not what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. They're breaking the law. And Jesus reinterprets it and says, if you understood what this even meant, the Sabbath, calling the Pharisees out, And then he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a claim Jesus makes about himself. If you're wondering what kind of claims Jesus made about himself, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And he claimed to be the truth about what the Sabbath means and how it would be applied to our lives. And so there is this conflict that is taking place. I want you to feel that. Okay? Today, there is great conflict taking place at 425. The Ravens play the Steelers. There's great conflict that's going on, okay? That's minuscule and silly. This is very real, and it has eternal consequences. Conflict. They're at odds. So he finds himself in a synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees go to Jesus. They're going to question Jesus uh, because... They are really interested in learning about the law. They, they want to hear, they want to learn from Jesus, right? No, that's not what's taking place. They ask him a question because they want to accuse him. They ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? There's, there's one way to ask a question, there's another way to ask a question. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, Right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? They want to get them, right? Let me me illustrate a little bit of what happened this week. So my kids work very hard. I'm very proud of them. Every parent should be to some degree proud of their kids, right? I'm not bragging on my kids, but I'm bragging on my kids. I like my kids. I think they're great. I think they're killing it. They're doing a great job. So, you know, me, just the great father that I am, decide, well, you know what tomorrow is? It's donut day. So uh, that's it. So I took them to Glazed and Confused downtown. We're going to go right before school. I'm going to hook you guys up. You've earned it, right? A simple little reward to say, I'm proud of you, midweek. Give a little boost, midweek. So we go, the kids are excited about it. They're like, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. And then all of a sudden, one of my children who remain nameless, one of my children kind of did one of these. Uh, Yeah, so where where is Glazed and Confused, Dad? And I'm like, oh, wow, this... This child wants to learn about geography. Wow. This is, what a sweet person uh, this is. Where is, oh, it's downtown. Well, well, well where is it downtown, Dad? What? Down like on Clinton Square. It's close to Clinton Square. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so 
how far is it to Kubal? <laughs> and it hits me. It hits me like a ton of bricks. She wasn't interested. Sorry. They, <laughs> they weren't interested at all in any way, shape, or form about the geography of Syracuse. We're interested. That's what this church is all about, right? Geography. We're not interested at all in geography, where this is in reference to that and getting to understand the grid of Syracuse. Not interested in that. It was very simple. If we're close to Kubal, maybe you could get me a coffee too. You know, and I saw it and I go, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Enjoy the donut. But there's a, there's a, there are multiple ways to ask a question, right? The motive is there. See, the motives of the Pharisees are not to learn about the Sabbath. They had zero interest in integrating the, the teaching philosophy of Jesus about the Sabbath. Their convictions were set in stone. They were all in on their Phariseeism. Okay? That's what they were all in on. And so they were setting them up. It was a trap. They were banking on the fact that Jesus would say something that would incriminate him, that would discredit him. They want all these people that are following Jesus around and seeing the miraculous signs that he's doing to look at him and say, yeah, he's a nice guy, but he's a lawbreaker. We can't trust him. We can't trust him. But Jesus, as we see in verse 15, is always aware of what's going on in our hearts. And so I'm asking the question even now to each and every one of you, why are you here? Why are you present in this place? Why have you come here today? What's the real motivation in your heart? What is, Jesus, I just want you to know, Jesus knows exactly what's your heart motivation. As you consider Jesus, as you look to him, as is something inside of your heart that doubts, that seeks to discredit, understand this, he knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows everything. He's aware of this. You see that in verse 15 about their conspiracy. So Jesus knows your heart. Whether your heart is pure or not, whether your questions come from an uh, intrigued, interested point of view, or whether or not uh, uh, you want to learn from him, or whether or not at the end of the day you're just looking for any reason to discredit who he is. Jesus knows your heart. He responds to a question with a question, right? He says, like he did in chapter 9, he says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? You see, Jesus is aware of their teaching. That it was allowed, they were allowed in some cases, especially, according to their tradition, they were especially allowed to take care of their animals, especially if they were in a life-threatening situation. You were allowed as well to care for someone, to lift a hand, to do some work, if you will, to not rest on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life and death. But as far as they were concerned, this man's withered hand was a long uh, time condition for him. It was not a matter of life and death. Matter of fact, it could wait until the next day, Jesus, if you truly want to be faithful to God. And so Jesus understands where they're coming from, that they cared about their animals, they cared about people. If it was a matter of life and death, they would jump in and feel like it was lawful to work and not rest on the Sabbath. And he illustrates here that there's something of more value than a sheep, a human life. The human condition is much more valuable than the condition, the life of a sheep, right? There's, there's something about the, the, the value of a human being, what they're going through, what they're facing, what they're wrestling. 
that, that rises it to the surface, that this is not to be kicked to the curb as we can do this on another day. But it's something that Jesus deems to be good and necessary, especially as it pertains to him fulfilling his purposes in the world. And then he answers them and says, so, based on the value of human life, based on the law, it is good. It is good, he says, to do good. I'm sorry, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. While they might have thought that compassion and love was illegal in these terms, Jesus is saying the opposite, that compassion and love and helping this person out is good. It is lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so then Jesus turns, verse 13, and says to him, stretch out your hand. He commands the man with a withered hand, which basically just means that there had no life in it, no strength, no blood, no functionality. It was basically useless to the man. And he said to the man, with such authority, and at the very same time, compassion. Even there, I think we see something that oftentimes diverges. We see something come together and converge and meet in the person of Jesus. Both authority and mercy at the same time. Both authority and compassion. Love that about Jesus. He's powerful and he's mighty. But oh, he's merciful. He's merciful. He says, stretch out your hand. And and, and lest we just gloss over this quickly in the passage, it says that the man stretched it out and it was restored. That means blood flowed to it. It strengthened was immediately at his word, and in response to his word, restored. Its vitality and its functionality was immediately obvious, and he was able to use it. Wow! You should feel the wow of that. Again, in the midst of conflict, the Pharisees looking to accuse Jesus, Jesus teaching them about what is lawful on the Sabbath, and then saying, hey, if you don't believe my words, let this action, this healing, vindicate and validate what I'm saying. It's good, it's lawful to heal based on the value of human life. That we don't have to see a dichotomy between authority and the law and love. There's no dichotomy. They come together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what makes Christmas so wonderful. That the coming of God into the world puts on display for us a real human event where law-keeping and love-giving intersect. Intersect. I think that just reveals the glory of God. And yet, not everyone's excited about it, right? You would think the Pharisees would go, well, this guy kicked our butt. I guess he's right. I guess we should do good on the Sabbath. Maybe we should listen to this Jesus After all, I don't remember the last time any of you guys told somebody to stretch out their hand and it was healed. I mean, this is dramatic. This is dramatic. And you think they would go, okay, we lose. Game over. Game, set, match. Jesus. But what does the text say they did? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What a bunch of wackos. I mean, these people are nuts. Right? These Pharisees said, this guy, what a nice guy Jesus is being. 
I mean, clearly he has authority. Clearly he has mercy. He cares about people. Right? I mean, they're the religious leaders of the day, and they, they want to destroy him. They're out to lunch. I mean, it would be really hard for us to identify with the Pharisees, right? I mean, that'd be really difficult. I mean, we may walk away. We may ignore him. We may say, well, he had a good... Jesus, you know, he got lucky. But to say, I'm going to kill him? I, I, hey, guys, let's all get together. Let's make a plan to kill the healer. That seems a little drastic, right? But again, you've got to understand the conflict. You've got to understand the animosity. You've got to understand the competing agendas of Jesus and the Pharisees to understand their vehemence. Why they're so angry at Jesus. Why getting dunked on spiritually really bothered them. It frustrated them. Right? We might, we might look at a story like this and say, oh, this is fable. could easily doubt Jesus. We might ignore Jesus, walk away, say, what's for lunch? Right? We may redefine Jesus. Uh, this is the kind of Jesus. Jesus doesn't keep the law. Jesus loves people. Right? The liberals love to do that, don't they? Doesn't liberal Christianity love to go, oh, the law, the truth of the gospel, the, the absolute nature of God's revelation, none of that stuff really matters anymore. God is all about love. Right? Redefine Jesus. Wow, what a great guy. And redefine him. But, but would we kill him? Would we want to conspire to put an end to Jesus when we see such an act? We would never do that, right? But again, I wonder if Jesus physically showed up into our lives. Like, we, he was here. We saw him physically. And I wonder what we would do if Jesus began to speak out directly in front of a crowd of people whose approval we loved. I wonder if Jesus came into our midst. We couldn't avoid him. We couldn't ignore him. We couldn't cast him aside. It's some nice, cute story. But he showed up in our house. He showed up when all of the people that cared about us were witnessing him basically dunking on our heads spiritually. Imagine if Jesus threatened our lives the way that Jesus threatened the lives of the Pharisees. I wonder what we would do with Jesus. What if Jesus showed up into your life and so whatever, whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me? Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life loses it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What if Jesus shows up in your life and says, tape your cross, die. Follow me there. Come and die that you might live. Or maybe more practical for us in 2017 uh, uh, American Christianity, living under the abundance and affluence of this society. Imagine if Jesus showed up in your life and said, Brother, sister, sell your possessions and give it all away. Imagine if he said to Paul daily, not to pick on him, sell everything you have, give, give your business away, sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, and then follow me. Imagine that kind of call. 
we might be angry at Jesus. We might get frustrated at Jesus. If he were to challenge the things that meant most to us and say, let it go, we might say to our friend or our neighbor, hey, we've we got to do something about this Jesus character. He's causing problems in my life. He's confronting my suburban lifestyle. He's calling into question my money, my relationships, my time. If Jesus were to show up and just call you to radical repentance, radical life change in your marriage, at work, in your finances, in your relationships, maybe we wouldn't like Jesus so much. But here's the truth. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's confronting the things that we have replaced him with, our greatest treasures. And for the Pharisees, it's, it's Phariseeism, it's the law, it's the Torah. As far as they're concerned, if that crumbles, everything they love crumbles to the ground. So what would we do with that, Jesus? Imagine that. I think we would be more apt to reject him. I think that we would be more apt to be disgusted and frustrated with that kind of Jesus. I think that Jesus would, would, would confront our distorted view of Jesus that's all about love and all about mercy and it's just really here to serve us. Really a, a God made in our image rather than us being made in the image of God. Who confronts our idolatry of approval and control and significance. Who really cuts to the chase and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But don't miss it. Here's the wonderful thing. As you recognize that it's not the withered hand that's at stake here, but the withered heart. Right? That's what the Pharisees have. They don't have withered hands, but they have lifeless, withered hearts. And I wonder if some of us here today have lifeless, withered hearts in relationship to God. On the outside, we have it all. We're going to church. We're given a little bit of change. We even go to small group. We listen to long sermons on Sunday, right? We've got it all going for us. If anyone were to look at us on the surface, they would see there's a man or a woman devoted to God. But where is your heart before him? That's the power of the Christmas season. Love and law come together in the person of Jesus Christ. While we recognize we are the lawbreakers, we look to him as not the lawbreaker, but as the law keeper. We look to him as, as not someone that keeps the law at the expense of love, but his, his, his law keeping is his act of love to us. It all comes together in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas highlights. The intersection of law and love. There's no dichotomy. It comes together in Jesus Christ. Is that not the gospel? Heaven intersecting with earth. God intersecting with man. In the birth of a child. Glory intersecting with humility in the person of Jesus Christ. Love intersecting with law in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. And we see that's exactly what's taking place. Whether we receive it or reject it, that's what Christmas is. Whether we receive Him or reject Him, that's who Jesus is. The fullest expression of God's love and God's law. But not only that, verse 15 through 21, and I'll wrap this up as quickly as I can. Show that it's not just 
the intersection of law and love, but it is the intersection of promise and fulfillment. We live in a day and age where we hear a lot of promises from a lot of politicians about this is what I'm going to do, this is, what I'm, this is my agenda, this is X, Y, and Z. I don't care which side of the spectrum you are politically. Basically, bah humbug when it comes to the political sphere sometimes because you hear all these ideas and, and this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And so we're a people that have grown uh, to just be skeptical of promises, especially when they're made by people. But the wonderful thing about the Christmas season is it's a reminder of a God who makes a promise and he keeps his promise. How do we know that God is keeping his promises in the person of Jesus Christ? The way in which Jesus responds. Look at what it says. Jesus, aware of this, grabbed a couple of his buddies and they conspired to take the Pharisees on face to face. No. I've confessed to you before, I'll confess again. There's sometimes inside of me a little bit of a hostile gene. Like somebody says something and it's like, let's do this. Right? Like a little confrontational. And, and, and I'm still being sanctified in it. You know, especially, you know, 425 today. There's going to be a little, little jump in my step. We're ready for the ravens, okay? But that's not Jesus at all, right? He's aware of what they're doing. You think if, if someone's threatening my life, if someone's discrediting my ministry, someone wants to rip me apart and destroy everything I'm trying to accomplish in this world, that you might want to defend yourself. You might want to uh, get people around you to help you take these people on, to remove the threat. See, the Pharisees want to remove the threat. You would think, oh, here's an idea. Maybe Jesus will remove the threat, right? But that's not what Jesus does at all. The text says that he's non-provoking. He withdraws. It's not my time. It's not my time. I'm not here to start a fight. Not right here, not right now. Right? Not here for that. So he continues his ministry. People follow him. He heals them all. Hello. Jesus heals them all and orders them not to tell anyone. Don't make him known. Jesus is not provoking the Pharisees in his ministry. Jesus is not looking for publicity. He's not Instagramming or tweeting or going Facebook Live about anything. He's not interested in the approval of men. Amen? That's not the Jesus that we worship and no, because Jesus is what Isaiah prophesied. He is the servant. Servants don't do that. Right? Servants are non-provoking. Servants are not looking for publicity. They're behind the scenes. Right? They're doing good work. They're submitting to the Father. They don't need any praise per se. You see, Isaiah prophesied 700 years prior, Behold my servant whom I've chosen. Jesus is the chosen servant of God. And you know that Isaiah 42 through 53 is the, the, servant, the, uh, the servant songs, the suffering servant leading up to 53. That this is how God was going to carry out his plan of redemption through a servant. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, the son, the beloved son, God, that's who Jesus is. He's uh, the one in whom the Spirit indwells. I will put my Spirit on Him. God's Spirit is upon Jesus. That's the kind of power and authority 
that his teaching has and his healing has. The Spirit of God rests upon him, indwells him. He proclaims justice to the Gentiles. He does not quarrel, he does not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. This is the kind of servant that Jesus is. And this fulfills the promise of the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so during Christmas, we remember that. we got a season of expectation, right? right? The expectation that God made a promise and he would keep it. So if you're looking for a, a reason to trust God, here's one. He fulfills his word to his people in human history. It's not just theory, it's reality. He said 700 years prior through the prophet Isaiah, I will send my servant. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he sent his servant. In Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says that the servant would give his life as a ransom payment for all. That his leading, his authority is not one of what? Lording it over. But one of servitude, humility, meekness. That's the kind of Jesus that is made known in this passage. Christmas highlights the intersection of promise and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why this season brings things together for me. Right? As the, the craziness of the fall kind of die down, and we go into the holiday season, the Christmas season, there's a re real unique opportunity to see Christ for all that he is, for things to come together. And I'm just going to end with this, with baptism being a, a primary illustration, what we saw today. We saw three people signify the intersection of the identity of Christ and their own identity. That they, something that was apart, right? That, that in their sin, they were dead and they were apart from God. And that may be you this morning. In your sin, you feel lifeless, you feel withered, and you, are, you feel far from God. But you understand that Christmas is about how God brings that back together. God and man. Heaven and earth. Through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Which this baptism signified for you. That all those who believe and belong to Jesus. Really all those who receive the gift of Christ by faith. Are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So maybe today, that's what God's doing in your heart. He's looking us, stretch out your hand, he says to the man with a withered heart. But maybe he's saying to you, uh, open up your withered heart to me. Open up your withered heart to me and allow my identity, my work to take residence up into your heart. Open yourself up to me and I will pour my spirit and my identity into you. That is a wonderful promise of the gospel. Of all the presents that you wrap this Christmas. Of all the cute little decorations. Don't let it distract you from the ultimate gift. That meets your ultimate need. Reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. As his identity intersects with yours by faith. If you do that. I think as we, our identities are reshaped, I think Sabbath begins to take on a whole new name, doesn't it? About how to be faithful Sabbath keepers. 
Come to me, all, who, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? You heavy laden? Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen? Everything comes together in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas signifies. That's what it celebrates. And I pray, I can't make you, can't make you grab a hold of that. But I plead with you, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Let His love and His law keeping on the cross for you intersect with the deepest part of your withered soul. And may His blood cover you and cleanse you and resurrect you from the dead. That is my heart for you this Christmas. I'm done yelling and screaming. Let's pray together as the band comes forward. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are, for all that you have done. Praise you, God, that you made a promise to your people and you kept it, that we were not left waiting and waiting and waiting only to find out that you never followed through. But uh, if anything, if there's anything that we know about you is that you're faithful. You're a faithful God. And I pray that if there's anybody here today that has not placed their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus that has not repented of their sin and run into your arms for life and for hope, that they would do so right now. That they would not wait for tomorrow. Life is too fragile and vulnerable to wait till tomorrow. May they do it today, O oh God. By your Spirit, draw them to yourself. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing.